As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. And welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Gladwell. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to our latest edition of Starkville. Uh, as you can tell, Jason Stark isn't actually saying this part because Jason Stark is in Italy and Sicily in particular. He's doing a tour and a much needed vacation. So I've ordered many foods by DoorDash. I don't know if they're going to get here in time, but I'm hopeful that it will come sooner rather than later. But uh, if you want to see more about this, uh, journey. He's. Uh, we have our YouTube, and there's a picture of Jason bragging about what I, he says is a gelato sandwich, which makes no sense because it would be melting and all that. But I don't know. I don't know my Italian cuisine that well. However, uh, I think next week on the show, Doug, that we're going to lead with having him explain what a gelato sandwich okay, is. Okay, that's good because I don't really want to look it up. I just want to know from the source about what is going on here. So that's what he said, gelato sandwich. But Jason is taking a well-needed rest out there. So I'm holding it down in Starkville. So I don't know. Everything is these days is plus, right? Everything is plus. Uh, I, you know, it's like YouTube plus, everything's plus. Disney plus, ESPN plus. Uh, I want to call this Starkville plus, except it's really a minus because he's not here. So we'll call it Starkville minus and we'll just take out the Stark. So that's fine. I don't think of it as like a reduced quality thing. We're thinking it as something positive as Jason Stark will come back bigger, faster, stronger, and we're going to get another trivia question next week. But I'm going to skip it because I don't want to ruin it for everybody because we're on a roll and I want to make sure we tag team it for the rest of humanity as we shoot for 100 victories this season in trivia. Uh, so that, I want to start with that. Now, you know, one theme I want to dive into this episode, because now I have free creative liberty to do this, and Jason can't stop me, is I want to be poetic a little bit today. Uh, and so the theme is going to be awe, A-W-E, awe, uh, the very important space that we get in 
and it connects so well to baseball that I thought it'd be a, a good thing to celebrate today. And it will connect to the road trip I went on, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But in the meantime, speaking of awe, let's talk about Andrew McCutcheon, okay? Andrew McCutcheon gets his 2,000th hit of his career. There it is! 2,000! A milestone moment for a Pittsburgh icon back home. 2,000 hits. And he said, look, I thought I was going to get 3,000 when I first started. He said he was naive. But 2,000 is pretty daggone good. 291st player to do so. That's a lot, considering there'd be over 20,000. And I'm sure Jason could give you the exact number. I'll let him text it from Sicily or something. But Andrew McCutcheon gets on the map. He does it in fine fashion by doing it in the original organization that he made his name in, the Pittsburgh Pirates. So he goes home and notches his 2,000 hits off the New York Mets and, you know, in the last game of the, of the homestand. So really a phenomenal story. And you think of these moments and you think about what is so special about this game. The numbers are one thing, but it's a storyline of coming home. It's a story of just enduring and, and persevering through all uh, to celebrate with the original family. And, and that is something that McCutcheon has been such a great pioneer and an ambassador for this game. And, you know, rightfully so, he connected with the Clemente family and sort of brought it back home who had uh, who passed away the day uh, after he got his 3,000th hit. So we'll always remember that in, in Pirates history. But McCutcheon has brought awe to us all for not only how well he's performed as an athlete, as a talent, but the person he's become and is for the game in representing it well. So we're excited to share that and uh, and part of this is understanding how else we can be awed by the magic of baseball, and one of which is a prediction very few people made, and that is the Miami Marlins being where they are, tied with the record, tied in record with the Los Angeles Dodgers, <laughs> whose payroll is just a little bit higher than theirs, and they're doing a, a great job. So uh, it makes perfect sense to today have our guest, Tommy Hutton, one of the voices of the Miami Marlins, make sense of it all. Well, very excited for our guest today, Tommy Hutton, and the voice of the Miami Marlins, and someone, of course, I've known a long time in my days of playing Stratomatic Baseball, where he was a one-rated first baseman, <laughs> and he was picking everything for me. But, uh, you know, he has a Philadelphia Philly history, and certainly we will dive into that. But, Tommy, I first want to welcome you to Starkville. This is without Jason Stark, who, by the way, is in Italy right now. And uh, I think we're trying to annex Venice and get like a Starkville section in Venice. But we'll see how successful <laughs> it is when we get back. But Tom, w welcome to the show. Hey, my pleasure. And I wonder if Jason's getting some good trivia in, uh, <laughs> in Italy. Perhaps I would guess that. And the other question I have in that Stratomatic game, how would that, uh, how would that work with the analytics and with war and all that stuff today? How would that work in with today? Well, the, the great news is they're still going. And the, uh, we met the guru of the data he lives in Connecticut, so we went to lunch with him. Mm. And I've been, a, you know, I know Hal Richmond, the the founder and creator. So they they keep up, but they add things slowly. They don't have they don't necessarily go like war, but they they've added a lot of stuff over the years, stadium effects and all kinds of stuff. So um, and I, I think they do the best to keep up with it and keep it as realistic as possible. So a lot of fun, but uh, but yeah. So Tommy, I mean. You know, well, of course, before I dive into the the amazing Miami 
Marlins right now. Mm-hmm. I did want to get a. You mean the team that has the same record as the Dodgers? Correct. Right now. Exactly. So there's a lot to talk about there. But I, you know, your background, right? You 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 grew up. You're a California kid, if I have that correct. And um, and you know, from what I understand, so 1966 was your your first year. So you had a long career started with the Dodgers. So I guess give me a sense of like kind of where baseball came into your life. Oh, wow. Well, you know, growing up in Southern California, we, we played a lot of baseball, but, but back then, uh, uh, going back that far, I was also of the generation where we played a lot of other sports too. Uh, even though we could play baseball year round, uh, at that time there weren't travel teams and things like that. But as I got, into high school, I realized that, that baseball was, uh, uh, that I was pretty good at it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I played in high school and, and, a, a friend of mine, uh, worked at Dodger stadium in the parking lot. And one day the scout came, uh, and wanted to park in my friend's section. And he said, no, the scouts can't park here. This is for the executives. But the scout said, uh, uh, let me park here. Uh, I'll do you a favor, whatever. And my friend said, okay. Go scout Tommy Hutton at South Pasadena High School. So the scout said, okay. So this particular scout was a guy by the name of Tommy Lasorda. (laughs) And he came and started scouting me in high school. And Tommy eventually signed me to to a contract in in 1965. And I went out and played A ball and just started started the career from there. I, I was fortunate that 66 year, I got called up at the end of the season. And uh, I'll, I'll always remember that, you know, of course, growing up in Los Angeles, I was a Dodger fan. And so I got called up and, and the very first game I got in, I only got in a couple games, was one inning of defense behind Sandy Koufax, <laughs> who was on the mound. Oh and Sandy Koufax, after the game, and I think it was his 23rd or 24th win, whatever, and actually what turned out to be his last season. He came up to me in the uh, locker room after the game and congratulated me for getting in my first major league game. How about that? Oh, wow. Sandy Kofa. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and, it, and in that journey, you, um, you, you hit, of course, my Philly stop. And uh, I was, uh, began my <laughs> fandom. But, you know, you had some postseason experience, 76 and 77. <clears throat> and, I, and the thing about me is, like, I grew up outside of New York City. So I had the Jersey roots. So I was, of course, struggling with how the Phillies got knocked out by the Dodgers 77, 78, mm-hmm. and then, you know, or the Reds in 76. And, and all those teams end up in the World Series, of course, against the Yankees. And I was like, ah, oh, these Yankee fans are driving me crazy. But, but what, what was it like to, like, get the, the first, like, postseason experience, uh, kind of, you know, middle of your career? Well, it was fun. It was exciting, that's for sure. And, and to take that a couple of years down the road when I got uh, – uh, traded to Toronto and then ended up in Montreal in in 1979. I was with the Expos the last weekend of the season. Uh, we were beaten in a series by the Pittsburgh Pirates, who ended up winning the World Series in 1979. And then in 1980, uh, we were beaten by Big Mike Schmidt home run <laughs> yeah. by the Phillies, who went on to win the World Series in 1980. So I came close a few times to get to the World Series, but the the excitement of postseason is uh, I look back on it and I can probably say I certainly wasn't ready for it. I mean, I didn't start, but I got in some games and it's uh, it's something you really have to try to slow everything down. And I probably didn't do a great job at doing that, but it was uh, it was really fun. 
we got pummeled by the big red machine <laughs> in 1976. I think they beat, beat us three games in a row. <laughs> they, they, if you remember, were pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, then the next year, the Dodgers, the Dodgers end up beating us on, on big pinch hits by one by Manny Mota and one by Vic Davalillo, believe it or not, big pinch hits in, in that series. Well, you mentioned 1980, so of course I got to jump on that real quick. Now, w- <laughs> one factoid I found in looking up your numbers here is you pitched an inning, okay, in 1980 <laughs> yes, with the Expos. So now I could I didn't pull up the box score because I wanted to hear it from you. Uh, so okay. so do you recall your your numbers uh, that day? I do. Okay, I do. I, I the amazing thing we were in St. Louis, the uh, Expos, and Dick Williams was the manager, and he comes down and. I, I want to say we're going to the uh, bottom of the eighth inning and it's nine to nothing Cardinals. And so he said uh, he knew I th- used to throw a lot of batting practice at that stage of my career. Uh, the guys that were getting ready for a left-handed starting pitcher, I, I, I was left-handed. So they used to like hitting off me in batting practice. So he goes, Oh, you like to throw BP. Why don't you go throw an inning? <laughs> so uh, again, in hindsight, you know, we have all these things we look back on. I see guys do it now. And, and they just lob it up there. I actually tried to pitch. I actually went back to my old high school days when I was a pitcher. And so so I, I used to tell the story, I almost pitched for the cycle because I gave, up, uh, I gave up a single, a double, a home run. I walked a guy. I got a strikeout. I struck out a guy you might have played with, Leon Durham. A little earlier. Sure. He yeah. might have been a little Spring before training, you. a little, oh, yeah, but. All right. Yeah. I struck out the bolt, <laughs> and I got a fly ball out and a ground ball out. So I gave up wow. everything but a triple. To this day, when I see this uh, tremendous player he was, now broadcaster, he always gets on me about the home run he hit off of me, Keith Hernandez. Oh, Keith. Oh, was, oh my gosh. Oh, left on left. <laughs> you, yeah, you get yeah. Then. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I try to fool. I, I'm out there on the mound, and again, I'm trying to I'm trying to think like a pitcher. So I throw him a curveball, and he, he hits it out. And then like two or three days later, I realize, looking back, he hit Steve Carlton as well as any left-hander I ever remember, and I'm trying to fool him with my curveball. <laughs> Yeah, Carlton. Woo, that's nasty. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, well, I love that. Well, you know, and, and part of that magic, uh, you know, you're carrying it forward, forward in the in the broadcast booth. You know, you didn't waste any time. You kind of jumped right in, and uh, you know, uh-huh. so so you're on. What year are we on here in in the broadcast realm? Well, it's it, it's it was a quick transition. I was a 81. People always ask me when when was the last year I played, and I always say 80 even though I was playing in 81 because I was horrible. <laughs> and uh, I think it was in August, the Expos needed to make a roster change and take me off the roster. So Dick Williams is sitting in the dugout, and I'm sitting next to him and next to John McHale, who was the uh, general manager and president of the uh, of the Expos. And they tell me that the worst thing about it, and you can attest to this, I think I was in group three, of hitting during BP and they called me out of my group. So I, I can, I missed the last five minutes of BP in my career ever. So they call me in the dugout and they tell me they're going to release me. And, and John McHale knew that I had an interest in broadcasting and he said, but would you like to remain with the team the rest of the season? Because at that time they didn't televise a lot of games, but Dave Van Horn and Duke Snyder did the radio, but they would move over and do TV games once in a while. 
and a, and a fellow by the name of Ron Roos would do the games on radio by himself. And so they said, would you like to work with Ron on radio the rest of the year? And I went home. My wife and I talked about it. I, I had uh, a little interest in going to Japan. And I thought if I did that, I would get so disassociated from Major League Baseball. And so I took the opportunity. So that was on a Sunday. And on Wednesday, I actually worked a game on the radio in Philadelphia. It was the Expos against the Phillies. I re always remember my first pregame interview was Chris Spire. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, Chris. I was out of I was out of the game over the last fifty eight years or whatever for two days. But actually, I was preparing for that game on Wednesday. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> like right away, your teammates are all of a sudden on the broadcast side. And just that's a that's a quick transition. Well, well, now you know you've been a voice of the Miami Marlins, Florida Marlins, <laughs> many. And what a season. And uh, so I, I want you to help us understand uh, what many did not understand <laughs> going into spring mm -hmm. training about this Marlins team. I mean, and, you know, you look at some of the numbers, it's not necessarily like, okay, they're not scoring a ton of runs necessarily, but they are finding so many ways to win. And you're seeing the, the, the live arms in that rotation. So I just want to, you know, hear your perspective of what you're seeing about this team that allows them to do what they're doing right now. And that is having the same record as the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, uh, it all started really in spring training in Jupiter, Florida with uh, skip Schumacher, their new manager. And, and this is nothing against Don Mattingly. I loved working with Donnie and uh, seeing him handle the club, but it was a mutual thing for him to leave. And uh, I think we were all a little surprised he ended up in Toronto as, as, a, uh, as a coach there. But Skip Schumacher wanted to, and you hear this term often, uh, uh, develop a culture and, and wanted everybody to be in on the same thing together. And it took a while. Uh, it wasn't like the Marlins got off to a great start. It took a while. But it's at a point now where uh, their last two games in Chicago against the White Sox, they were down by four or five runs and they came back and won. So uh, uh, one of uh, Schumacher's uh, lines is stay within slam distance. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're within slam range, you got a chance. And these guys believe that now. And they're getting individual. Uh, you've probably looked at the numbers. Jorge Soler, who was injured a lot last year uh, with some back issues. Man, he's got 19 home runs. He, he's got an OPS over 900. Uh, a guy that I don't think gets a lot of uh, acclaim nationally is uh, Brian De La Cruz. Right now, I would guess more people know who Ellie De La Cruz is <laughs> than Brian De La Cruz. But Brian De La Cruz is hitting in the middle of the lineup, playing in the outfield. He, he's got an OPS over 800. He's hitting near 300. Uh, he's done a good job. And then the whole country at least knows about Luis Arise at, uh, at second base. He had a, a really bad series in Chicago. He was only four for 13 at 308 in the series. So, so he dropped, he dropped below 400. Uh, he, he is so much fun to watch uh, because he's told us he has a routine that actually starts before he gets to the ballpark. It, when he's at home, he does some things at home when he's on the road in the hotel before he gets to the ballpark. And uh, I remember uh, when when the Marlins acquired him for Pablo Lopez, I remember getting in touch with Dick Bramer, who does the uh, Minnesota Twins uh, television. And I said, hey, Dick, what's uh, what's uh, Luis Arise? So he gave me some nice uh, little information on Louis. And, and then he said, here's a good one for you. He said, Rod Carew 
loves watching this guy hit. He said when when the Twins were playing, he said Rod Carew, I think, lives in California. He said he'd be on TV watching the games. And and so that's a – and then Luis has also talked about how Rod Carew, Antonio Oliva, guys like that, uh, he had a chance to talk to a lot when he was coming up in the Twins organization. So he's he's been a delight. And I'll tell you what, he's played a whole lot better second base than anybody ever told us. They, they said – well, he played 60 games, I think, at first base last year, and everybody told us, well, he's he's below average. And he has made all the plays. He's turned double plays, and he's played very good second base. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to dive into this Luis Arias phenomenon. I mean, I've always loved watching <laughs> him come up with Minnesota, but, you know, you know, just pulling up some of the, this information on this cat, right? First of all, all right. Well, he hit the he was the first Marlin cycle, right? He hit the cycle. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 and that's his only home run this year, too. <laughs> it's like okay, so <laughs> that was that was interesting. But the fact that he could oh, and and Doug, it was in Philadelphia. Oh too. yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, I don't want, I don't even want home runs. That's what it feels like. He's like, you know, I don't need these things. Let me just get my base hit. Yeah, but. But, you know, the fact is he, he won the batting title in the American League last year. So the fact that he could go back-to-back seasons was, was is unheard of. Uh, the fact that he could do it in two different leagues. And, and you know, you hear about, like, Freddie Freeman. What an amazing player. And Arias is hitting, like, 60 points higher than, <laughs> than Freddie Freeman. But the numbers are staggering. I mean, any split you want to pick. Day games, 382. Night games, 412. <laughs> Starting pitchers, he hits 397. Relief pitchers, he hits 397. He has 19 walks <laughs> and 13 strikeouts. I mean, I mean, what is that? I that's like first of all, it's like the the strikeout percentage seems to just go down. And you know, just the fact that you watch this guy and it's it's like a magic wand. And uh and and so, you know, 400 he's certainly been flirting with it, but like I guess what is your perspective when you're watching like this guy could actually do it. I mean, what do you what do you see as like four hundred as a, even a possibility? Well, it, it is a possibility. Uh, it's tough to do. Uh, by the way, he's hitting fifteen of his last sixteen, mm-hmm. like four sixty eight clips. So he's not he's not cooling off at all. Uh, it's so hard to do because hitters have to face so many more pitchers nowadays. With uh, you know, a, a starter going five, six innings. Now they might have to face four pitchers a night, at least three pitchers a night normally. So that makes it difficult. Uh, the the one little thing I think may hurt him is that he doesn't walk. A lot of guys who who have hit 400 or come close to it will draw a walk. So a rise might have a game instead of going one for three with a couple of walks, he goes one for five. So if there's anything that hurts him at all, I think it might be the fact that he doesn't walk a lot. Yeah, I mean, super aggressive and, you know, expanded. I mean, that's a guy, though, you know, he may not get 400, but he might get like 230 hits. <laughs> that's, yeah, you know, that's a yeah. very itchy road type of... <laughs> hey, by the way, you you talked about and you made a, an interesting... Uh, I, don't, you, I don't think you were making the analogy, but I've heard it made. He doesn't have this guy's power, but his swing and approach is similar to Freddie Freeman. They're always thinking, Luis Arise, his mindset, every swing is to hit a line drive over the shortstop's head. And if he gets a pitch that's in or an off-speed pitch, he'll pull it. But that's his mindset, and that's a lot like Freddie Freeman. Freddie has a lot more power. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, letting it get deep and almost hitting it out of the catcher's glove. I mean, 
you know, just really amazing. And, you know, so I'm, you know, we're all on watch and I, I just love the numbers. This guy, you know, just, he hits lefties at a 382 <laughs> clip. I mean, it's just yeah. like, I mean, and he's just getting better runners in scoring position, by the way, 469. <laughs> so, so it's like, I don't know. I'm trying to find a hole in this, but, um, but, you know, but speaking of just how, you know, he's so clutch, you know, this is a, a lineup that generally is not scoring a ton of runs, but you think about the other side of that equation and the run prevention side, and this, you know, this is happening without, you know, Big Sandy at his best, 4.75 ERA, and yet still finding ways to, to outpitch, outperform. So what do you see on that pitching side uh, that's different about this year versus last? Well, okay, Sandy, yeah, the team, I believe, in Sandy's starts is 5-8. and eight. Mm-hmm. So that's three games under 500. Um, it's a real puzzling situation because he still – has the same stuff that he had last year. Fastball velocity's up. He's getting fewer ground ball outs, even though he got a lot of ground ball outs in Chicago's last outing, which hopefully is a nice little turnaround for him. Seven innings, he gave up just one hit, got no decision. So fewer ground ball outs, and, and there's a little more hard, hard hit contact. So he's making some mistakes. But the velocity on the changeup and the fastball and everything else is fine, so it's not a physical thing. And he's gotten hurt by – he doesn't get much run support. He's gotten hurt by a few crazy plays. Uh, he made an error himself one day. And I think he, – he certainly wouldn't talk about this, but I think some of it might be getting in his head a little bit because he, he's, he's such a hard worker and he takes so much uh, on his shoulders and he's responsible – so I think he feels bad when uh, his team doesn't win on the days he pitches. Uh, but the the bottom line to that, he's been a great mentor to the 20-year-old Iori Perez, mm. who's 3-1, uh, and one, I think, in his first six or seven starts with an ERA in the twos. Uh, Jesus Luzardo has been uh, just tremendous. He's probably been the most consistent of the starters. Uh, Edward Cabrera. Uh, another guy who possesses a 94-mile-an-hour changeup, which is hard to believe. Uh, uh, he's pitched well. And then just to throw a little different look at, at teams, Braxton Garrett has really done a terrific job with the way he pitches, and that's, that's what he does. He knows how to pitch, and that's exactly what he did in a no decision uh, against the White Sox yesterday. So the rotation's been good, but I honestly think you have to look at the way the bullpen has come together. Um, you do a lot of research on a lot of teams. And I, I said it the other day on the air, and I don't think there's another team. I didn't do any research. <laughs> I don't think there's another team that has four lefties in the bullpen. Um, but the Marlins do with uh, Nardi and Okert and Tanner Scott and A.J. Puck, who's back off the I.L. now. So uh, Skip Schumacher has mixed and matched really well. J.T. Shagwa. Uh, uh, Dylan Floro's closing out games. Uh, uh, Oscar Brazabon had a nice little run. So the bullpen, because a lot of the starters don't go seven, eight innings as they used to, the bullpen's really been uh, impactful too. Yeah, and one thing uh, Skip Schumacher has been, you know, asked about at various times is sort of managing the innings, right? You know, sort of, you know, you think about load management, you think about, you know, you're trying yeah. to have something left in the tank, so to speak, in, in the playoff push. And uh, and Lazardo, for example, at a pace that's 
you know, beyond, you know, it's 200 innings and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what do you see in, in any adjustments in how they're going to handle that situation? Well, first of all, for from this old school guy like me, it gets frustrating when I see a kid throwing six really good innings and then boom, he's out of the game. I understand it, though, the way the game is, is managed today. Um, I think what their plan is, and I don't know this for a fact. This is just my thinking. First of all, uh, Trevor Rogers is down on rehab. He's made a couple of uh, rehab starts. I think he might have had a little setback the other day. And then another guy, a veteran who they signed, Johnny Cueto. Mm-hmm. So uh, if those two guys come back, I could envision, and I have no idea if the, if the organization has talked about this, I could envision a six-man rotation to give, give everybody a little extra day, to manage those innings a little better. Uh, so that's just my thought. I, I don't know what their plan is, but I do know they have those two guys in Trevor Rogers, a, a lefty who really has good stuff, and Johnny Cueto, a veteran. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, and, you know, somehow with all these starters, and you mentioned the bullpen and the mixing and matching, they are pulling off something that's historic right now. And that is they're 17 and five as of yesterday <laughs> in one run games, yeah. 17 and five. And if they continue at this pace, I'm going to throw my Jason Stark hat on. That will be <laughs> the best winning percentage in one run games since 1900. So you're talking <laughs> Grover Cleveland was president type stuff. Okay. So, I mean, so what do you, and I think Jason, <laughs> vo- I think Jason voted for him. He, he might have actually in, in Italy, apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, I mean, what? So, what is it? What's what's been the magic? I see. Like, I love watching, uh, looking at Sarah Langs, who has her win probability charts, and she'll have this crazy mm-hmm. graph where the Marlins' win probability is like way down here, and then then all of a sudden at the last inning, it's like a hundred percent. Like, so so what is happening? How are they pulling off all these one run games? Tell her not to count out the Marlins. You never know. They were they were so horrible. I, I, I it's off. I can't think of it off the top of my head, and I don't have it in front of me. They were horrible in one run games last year, uh, twenty or twenty five games under five hundred, and they got off to a start. And I think what happens, and you know, it, you know this as well as anybody as a player, you get that confidence, and all of a sudden they won a couple one run games. They won a few more, and all of a sudden now. Uh, if it's a close game, the Marlins have them just where they want them because they know they've been so successful in one-run games. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. Well, you know, I wanted to turn a little bit to just how this team is built. Okay, the you know we we know the the Marlins story 
over all these years. And I was certainly mm-hmm. a victim of one of them in 2003 when they knocked us out and they were loaded with talent. <laughs> and you look back and like, that was one of the greatest teams of all time. But you, you realize like they've, they've done this sort of build up, get the championship, throw off the pieces and then take another five years to get back. You know, and Kim Eng as the leader and a pioneering leader at that, uh, what do you see strategically about what's different about this team? Like, are they built to last? Is this something, uh, or are you in kind of a Marlin cycle where there's concern about where this goes once people get really expensive? They're 24th in payroll right now at ninety, almost $92 million. So the, they're the lowest payroll in the division. The Washington Nationals are almost $10 million more. Uh, but, you know, so, so I guess where do you see, you know, how we got here and, and can we stay here kind of thing? Well, uh, it's that's that's a great question, and you're right. In 2003, I do remember that, and and uh, I hope you will agree with me on this. I think the 2003 Marlin infield was the best defensive infield I've ever seen. Mike Lowell, Alex Gonzalez, Luis Castillo, and Derek Lee, best defensive infield I've ever seen. Not to mention their offense, but um, I think. You don't have a whole lot of players. And we've talked all this time about the Marlins, and we haven't even mentioned Jazz Chisholm Jr., <laughs> who's on the IL uh, with a, a turf toe that he banged into the wall trying to make a catch. Um, they've played well without him. They need him, though, because, number one, he's a left-handed bat. He's an exciting player. So he's certainly a player that you see in their future. Uh, do you see Gene Segura or Joey Wendell? I don't know. Uh, Gene signed to a couple of uh, couple years uh joey wendell's been actually got off to a terrible start and all of a sudden he's been on fire gene segura you know the kind of player he is and you look at his numbers you go what's wrong with there's nothing wrong with him he's he's just not hitting he's starting to though so you you look ahead and you think okay those two guys the rest of the way are going to play the way the back of their baseball card says they'll play uh you got Luis arise for a while uh over first base uh, he's going to be 39. Uh, Yuli Gurriel, uh, th- he's not the future at first base, nor is uh, Garrett Cooper, I don't think. Another guy who's come up with some big hits. So you look at different positions and you wonder in which direction uh, Kim Eng will be going. Uh, Brian De La Cruz, young player, got control of him. Jesus Sanchez, a left-handed bat, got control of him. He'll be around. Uh, if Jazz stays in center, the outfield's okay. Um I think they, they would like to uh, uh, maybe do a little help with their catching situation, Jacob Stallings and, and Nick Fortes. Uh, Nick has been tremendous and has uh, done a great job blocking pitches, probably a little better offensively than, than Jacob is this year. So that's a position they, they would look at. Uh, their starters, I think, are all intact pitching-wise, so I think that's good news. Uh, bullpens, in my opinion – I think over the years you can mix and match. I mean, how many teams have the same bullpen three or four years in a row? Uh, Not that many. So I think that's an area where you can always mix and match. I'm looking forward to hopefully, because it's been a while, hopefully this year around trading deadline time that the the Marlins are buyers and not sellers. Because in the past it's always been the other way and and you think about now the format you know just adding that team a year ago you know you have all these little extra wild cards so you get more buyers than sellers if theoretically everybody who's in it which is usually like 20 something teams now 
I'm, yeah, I'm very curious to see like, you know, how they play it. I mean, how have you seen the matchups in this division? You know, you have the National League East, you, you see the Mets, you see the Braves, you yeah, see some elite question. teams who have a whole lot of money. What's those matchups been, look like? And do you, do you see like a cream of the crop so far? Well, the, the cream of the crop, in my opinion, is the Atlanta Braves. And unfortunately, the Marlins do not match up well with the Braves. They played the Braves early, uh, earlier, have not played them well. Um, and with the schedule, though, the way it is, not having to play them 19 times, I think that helps. Uh, they match up pretty well against the uh, Mets. The, the funny part about the schedule, they played the Mets two series in uh, April, and they don't play them again until September. And then they're through with the Mets. Yeah. Uh, similar with the Braves. So they match up really well against Washington. They've always had success against Washington. They've played the Phillies pretty well. So I think a lot of it depends. And over the years, watching teams play each other, it's it's not so much how you match up over 162 games. It's, it's how you're playing during that particular series. You might come into Philly and they're they're not playing well at all. Uh, Schwarber struck out a ton of times. Turner's not hitting. But all of a sudden, if Turner gets hot and you go into Philly, now you're in trouble. So it's when you play a club, and uh, and, and that's how it usually works. But the Braves, in my opinion, are, the, are their toughest matchup, and they are the best team in the National League, the whole league. You know, yeah, just you know, watching the Braves, I've seen – a few times this season and you know the versatility we know that they've always had a young core and the way they've approached it is locked these guys up and i think that's mm -hmm. a team that underscores the resource question right because you you have a team that says okay we have this money and we're going to take michael harris we're going to take matt olson we're going to take all these players uh you know austin riley and we're just going to lock them up We've already know what we have, and we can make those kinds of commitments. Commitments where the Marlins are not in that situation, certainly payroll wise, mm -hmm. and and so the creativity, uh, you know, the diamonds and the rough, and then you know the challenge of just keeping them when when they're finally at that point where they're about to command some money. I think that you know that sometimes is creates these differences. So I guess how do you? Um, we talked about like what they may do build wise, but are, are there guys right away you say yeah? We gotta lock that guy up. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good one because uh, you see it happen. One of the one of the to this point anyway, there, there's still a chance. But one of the mistakes that uh, the Marlins have made is locking up uh, Avisael Garcia. I thought he'd be a, a really good addition. Had some injury problems last year. He's been hurt again this year, so they've got a four year commitment to him. That's why it's good to see Jorge Soler bounce back uh, this year because they locked him up a little bit. I would say the, the general fan would say lock up Jazz Chisholm Jr. I would like to do that, but I would also like to see him stay healthy and, and give you 140 games a year, which he hasn't been able to do so far. Uh, I, I would love to see him locked up. Uh, I probably still need to see a little bit more of De La Cruz and Jesus Sanchez before I would uh, commit to that. A couple of the young pitchers, pitchers are, are hard to lock up because of injuries. And um, the Marlins are in a position where they're not like the Yankees or the Dodgers. The Dodgers and the Yankees can make a mistake and lock a guy up and they can hide that. It's no big deal. Uh, a team like the Marlins can't make a mistake. So that's why you have to really, really be 
satisfied that this is the guy you want. This is the guy who's going to stay healthy uh, as a pitcher and give you 25, 30, 30 starts a year. Well, a team like the Marlins that have some of these young young talent. I mean, you mentioned a pitcher who's Paris who's twenty. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, yeah. wait a minute, I was drafted at twenty. Okay, so yeah, so <laughs> I'm just like, you know, it is amazing, and and you think about the cultural shifts that's happened in baseball. You know, some of which is just like what's accepted, right? We 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 could go old school and think about the culture of what you know, is, is sort of over the top and what is and all these things, but also just the fact that rules have changed, just simply changed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm interested in what you see with a sort of a young core of players within the fact that, you know, pitch clock and shifts and all the things that have changed, like how it's impacted uh, the Marlins in particular. Well, one was, I'm glad you brought this up because we were talking about him earlier. One guy I think it's really impacted is uh, Sandy Alcantara. I think the the no shifting has affected him. A- as a ground ball pitcher with the shifts, I'm telling you, I can tell you, I can't tell you the number of times left-handers would roll over on that good changeup, hit a ball into the shift. So I think that's affected uh, Alcantara a little bit this year. As far as, uh, <coughs> excuse me, young players, young players now are coming up with all these new rules in the minor leagues. So they're, they're used to the pitch clock, the, the, the larger bases and the, the shifting. So I don't think it affects them as much. I think we've seen a few uh, veteran starting pitchers, uh, Scherzer, uh, maybe a Verlander, guys like that, affected, I don't know if I want to say negatively, in some ways it's affected them positively, but it has had an effect. More so, I think, on older players and on younger players. I guess what, what's what been your own personal take of just like the, you know, clock and the, the necessity that baseball had expressed about why this happened? I mean, just as a broadcaster, I know I'm like, wait a minute, I don't quite have as much time now. <laughs> so, so what? what, what Everything's <laughs> quicker. It's like, wait a minute, I just started my story. <laughs> we, jo- we joke and God love him. God bless him. We joke these new rules would have hindered Vin Scully tremendously. <laughs> the, the long stories, the great stories. But you're right. Everything ha- you have to think. I, I talk a lot with our uh, producer uh, in our television games. And, and I'm at the point now I do uh, fifth, about 55 uh, home games. I, I don't travel anymore. But I talk a lot with our producer, John Seltzer's his name, and Boy, it's had an effect. He's starting to find a rhythm and a, and a flow now. But early on, to get all the spots in, to get the defense, to get the the scouting report, all those things you need to get in the first inning or two, and then with the game going faster, uh, it 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 doesn't leave you a lot of time to get in a lot of other stuff. So yeah, it's affected it. It, it, it I, I'm thinking it might add another couple years to my career. Who knows <laughs> with the quicker? <laughs> but uh, I think. I look back, uh, and I played mostly in the 70s uh, and 80s. In the 70s, I remember a game, and this was with no pitch clock, Randy Jones and Jim Cott in San Diego. And, and it was, I think, and it was a 5-3 to three game. It wasn't like a one nothing game. It was about an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> and uh, both those guys working fast. So no pitch clock then. Most of the time, when Steve Carlton took the mound, hey, you made – plans to go out that night because it was going to be a quick one 
Uh, and most of those guys didn't need a pitch clock back then. So the game moved the way it's moving now. And I think everybody will adjust. I, I read an article or I saw a note the other day that possibly, and I, I don't agree with this, possibly there might be some arm injuries to pitchers because they're, the reliever comes in and throws 100, now walks around the mound and takes 30 seconds before he blows another 100. You don't see that anymore, and so maybe the recovery time. But I think it's going to change the way guys pitch a little. Uh, but I think guys are adjusting to it. Yeah, well, I, I try and uh, imagine the late great Vin Scully, and and I think <laughs> I think it would just have him talk over the commercials. He, he would actually just do the commercials. He would, so I, he would have adjusted. He would have, just he like, would have adjusted. Just, and now let's talk about this sausage we're trying to sell here. And then everybody's like, "Oh, that's the greatest <laughs> sausage commercial I've ever heard." <laughs> so it would have been it would have been great. But uh, but yeah, it's just um, you know that that shift has been you know well figuratively literally the shift of the rules has just been. Um, you know, just an impact. And you think about speed and just the chances to focus on stealing bases and other elements that sometimes other teams that were successful at small ball or going first to third or, you know, could have more of an opportunity. It certainly put a different kind of pressure on a team. And it seems like the Marlins have done pretty well by that, you know, in, in many regards. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think I've seen the Marlins and a lot of this is uh, Skip Schumacher. A lot of this, uh, has to do with rule changes, but I've seen uh, more hit and runs this year from from the Marlins, and I've seen the last uh, three or four years. And that's nothing nothing against Don Mattingly. A different game, different uh, uh, different group of guys, and different rules. So I, I've seen that, and I think more teams, especially teams like the Marlins, are utilizing that. Well, Tommy, you know, this has been fantastic. I, I one thing that we like to do as we uh, Welcome and also celebrate the entrance into Starkville. First of all, I always build a statue to everybody who appears. So there will be oh. a Tommy Hutton statue uh, somewhere oh, in Starkville. Gosh. So that would be amazing. Uh, but I, I wanted to, you know, say how well you know yourself. We talked about uh, the, the one inning that you pitched. So I want to <laughs> come back to another fascinating factoid I, I found. So I want to get but, I want to yeah. get your statistics against... Tom Seaver, Tom Terrific Seaver. <laughs> I want to see how well you know those numbers. So do you have any sense of batting average and home runs? Let's go with that. Uh, batting average, I'm not sure of. Home runs, I know I hit three, <laughs> three of my 22. Oh, oh, Tom Seaver. Here's the, 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 the part, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, the part that nobody knows is that the six-year stretch – that I was with the Phillies and he was with the Mets. I want to say the batting average was over 400. Yeah. But then I got sent to Montreal, Toronto, and then Montreal for three and a half, four years. And he went on to Cincinnati. And it was like the 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 mystique had gone. <laughs> and he owned me. I mean, during during that time, I, I want to say I was one for 15 or something. But but collectively, I'm not sure what it was, but I know the six years in Philly, it, it was close to 400 over 400. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, get, I'll give you, I'll get, well, first of all, you had 62 plate appearances against Tom Terrific. Yeah. The most against anybody. anybody yeah. And you hit 320. Yeah. So you still hit 320. Okay. With three bombs, okay. which is amazing. Uh, okay. One, okay. <laughs> one other question was in 19, this is according to baseball reference in 1966. You mentioned uh, the, yeah. the Dodgers. 
what was your salary? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I'll tell you, oh, I'm, I'm not sure what it was because I was only up for a month. But uh, it was probably six or seven thousand yeah, for it. a year. You got it. But but here, here's the great part about that. In 1966, the Dodgers went on one of those tours of Japan. Yeah. Not un- unlike unlike uh, now, uh, they went over for three weeks and played 15, 16 games. Uh, because I had had, had success, I, I won the Double uh, A batting title that year and got called up a little bit. So. I got invited. There were a few of the guys on the big club that didn't go. So I got invited to go to Japan. So my salary in, in double a that year was 600 a month. And so that was over five months. So that was $3,000. We got paid for the the three weeks in Japan, $3,500. I'm a 20 year old (laughs) kid. I thought I died and gone to heaven. I'm, I'm with all these big leaguers in Japan uh, playing with Maury Wills and guys like that. And uh, uh, and we got to play. That was my first introduction uh, to seeing firsthand Sadaharu Oh, oh wow. uh, uh, the great Japanese home run hitter. And the games we played, we played against all-star teams. I want to say he played in a probably 10 of the 15 or 20, and he hit six or seven home oh. runs. He was he, he was amazing. Um, so that was a thrill for me. Yeah, and, well, and, and in the legacy of Jackie Robinson, he he also did a Japan tour towards the very end of his career. I think after fifty five, and uh, that's something I've been reading a lot, trying to get more history behind. But yeah, it was a long trip, uh, and uh, that was how it used to go. The international goodwill. Uh, well, speaking of goodwill, Tommy Hutton, really appreciate you taking time today. I know you got to tee off soon. But uh, but yeah, a little but bit. You teed off on all these questions, and uh, <laughs> it was really helpful to get so much insight against the Miami Marlins. I mean, uh, I think we're overlooking them, and uh, you know, hopefully, I get to call a game and get to see it more firsthand. But it's been so much fun to watch Arias and and just the uh, the talent that's there. So toe to toe with everybody. So uh, yeah, you you always seem to work with some of my good buddies, uh, Dave O'Brien yeah. or. <laughs> Or Bukshambi, Bukshambi, you work with all my good, my former yeah. partners. I work with those yeah, guys. Yeah, <laughs> Boog with you know, Marlins right from the jump. That's that's how I met him. He knew a good friend of mine from high school, and he came up to me in like '97 or something. Uh, it's good times. But um, and and Doug, by the way, I had I admire you what you've done with your career. You, you, uh, you I remember we used to talk about you as a player. How this guy uh, graduated from Penn. I think you. Uh, didn't you put together either a paper or something about building a new ballpark down by Penn Station, something like that? But yeah. it, it was always a great story, which we couldn't tell now because of the pitch time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's like I missed five pitches, and, but yeah. yeah, that was uh, yeah, it was a glorious time. But I did I did a paper and. The final project of 119 pages. I think I set like a final senior thesis engineering project record or something. <laughs> but um, but yeah, that's uh, those were good days. And uh, but no, I appreciate your storytelling. And uh, look, I I'm huge Philly fan growing up, and obviously my years of Stratomatic aside, but I appreciate uh, what you bring to the broadcast, but also what you brought to my childhood because. You know, I uh, it was a time you. where you appreciated every single player and and all your contributions. Your defense. I mean, it was it was cool stuff. And beating up on Tom Seaver, who my brother loved, so I love <laughs> that. Uh, 
So, uh, but Tom, yeah, <laughs> definitely come back again and hopefully we'll cross paths somewhere this season somewhere. So um, I'd love that. I hope so. I hope the Marlins continue to play the way they have. And if they do, then we will cross paths because you'll get assigned to one of our games. All right. All right. Tommy Hutton, Miami Marlins voice and Philadelphia Philly. I'm going to throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. And be sure to say hi to Jason whenever he gets back from Italy. Yep. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Well, it was fantastic to catch up to Tommy Hutton. And as I mentioned before, uh, someone I was familiar with a long time ago because of my love for Stratomatic Baseball, Tommy Hutton, you know, I had to have those 70s Phillies teams who were always in the World Series, or no, I shouldn't say World Series, but close to the World Series as the Dodgers kept knocking them off. But Tommy Hutton was on one of those teams in 77, and uh, it was always cool to get that connection, especially when he's a one first baseman. And for those of you who don't know Stratomatic, a one is the highest rated defender you can get. It's it's just what you need when you want to shut people down. Run prevention, baby. Run prevention. Uh, so, you know, I want to continue on my journey in this idea about awe. We were talking about it earlier in the introduction. And one way to really capture it is let's talk about my road trip, Okay. A lot has happened this week because it was an unusually baseball-friendly week for me because we talked last week, Dodgers-Yankees, which was cool, in Dodger Stadium. I got to call that game. Aaron Judge literally knocked the fence down. We saw it. He's on the IL now, but really the fence is on the IL. Let's just be honest. So he runs the fence over, and that was awesome. Okay, that was. But I left Los Angeles, Dodger Stadium, and then I went to Anaheim. And I actually got to call three games with the Cubs and the Los Angeles Angels. And this is where it all comes together because when you're talking about awe, you have to stop at Shohei Otani. I mean, his face is probably there in Webster's. At least it should be. But Shohei Otani, I've seen play, but I got to see a three-game series of this man at work. And just, first of all, the legendary stories of him when he's not even around is one thing. But 
I never saw him take batting practice on the field. Man never took batting practice on the field. He likes to hit off the tee. But of course, he can't just do it like normal humans who hit off the tee, where I would hit it, knock the tee over, and have to pick it up. Unless it's a Tanner tee, by the way, which is one of the greatest tees that never fall over. Okay, Humpty Dumpty. Uh, and that's an idea. I should name my next tee Humpty Dumpty. So anyway, I'm coming. Well, he cracked. Did he crack? Weeble. Weeble wobble. That's it. I need the weebles. So my next tee will be the weeble. So I'll call you back on that. Uh, licensing. I'm put the copyright right now, so I can I can come and sue you if you take that. Okay, so let's get back to my story. Shohei Otani, we know, is all personified, and one of the stories I heard when I was at Anaheim was from their hitting coach, Marcus Timms, who is someone I got to know Yankee Land somewhere along the road, and. So he's like, I was like, let's just talk about Shohei Otani just a little bit. Like, what are you working on? He's like, he's like, well, he used to have a high hand position. We brought his hands down, and now he's straight to the ball. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. To say, but you know, what does he do that's so magical that we we don't know? He's like, well, uh, we had him hit off the tee, and we decided to just check the exit velocity, and it was 113 miles an hour. Come on, 113 off the tee. So I was just like, okay, if you put the tee at home plate. And he hit it to center field. Where does it land? And given he had to use NASA coordinates to explain that, that that's all you need to know. I mean, 113 miles an hour off the tee. Okay, I'm just that. So, so since we're talking about awe, Shohei Otani is it. Now, Shohei Otani in that series, one of the games, hit a ball that I was watching Seiya Suzuki tried to rob in right field. So I was like, oh, wow, that might go out. But I, didn't, I forgot the rule. They moved the line, the home run line, down to the lower fence. So all that scoreboard stuff is a home run if it hits it. So we couldn't tell because of all the bright lights. It hits the wall. And I'm looking at Suzuki almost catch it. And then I turn to third, and Otani is like sliding into third base. I was like, wait a minute. we are. This guy's all so fast, Okay. How did he teleport to third base? So Shohei Otani, who throws 100, hits 100, and apparently runs 100, but hits the ball off the wall, standing on third, triple. And then, of course, it was a home run anyway, so they gave him the circle. So that was one thing that we have to note. The man can run. Okay, he can run. But part of the fun of just being odd in this game is watching Major League Baseball players get reduced to little children. And that is the beauty of it. We want to go back to our childhood. And Seiya Suzuki, if you recall, declared his love for Mike Trout when he signed with the Cubs. He was like, I love you, Mike Trout. Mike Trout, I love you. <laughs> he, he still has this admiration because he hadn't formally met him. So it's kind of like the icon is still the icon. And so I got to witness Seiya Suzuki meeting Mike Trout behind home plate during uh, pregame. And he was reduced to like speechlessness. He just was like, so he had his translator and they were trying to talk and it lasted probably like 90 seconds. And uh, Trout apparently was supposed to send a bat. So this is a major league player, by the way, a very good one in Suzuki. But just the fact that baseball can bring you back to that place where you feel like a little kid again in that innocence and that love for it is so pure that as a major league ball player still can be around another major leaguer who you know, is one of the greatest, certainly, but you're pretty good yourself and still feel like it's a mismatch. It's just something that Mike Trout is giving him. Uh, I just, I loved it. It was so cool to see. And, um, and moments like these just remind you that these major league players, 
you know, still our kids at heart. And and Suzuki has brought a lot of joy and energy to the way he plays. But the fact that Mike Trout is still Mike Trout tells you how long he's been doing this. And uh, and I watched Mike Trout work this time. Guy hits the ball off the tee. He, he does all kinds of drills. But one drill he does is the curveball machine. He sets it up before the game. Now, you know, you're one of the greatest hitters ever, but still outworking everybody. Curveball machine down and away, sets it up nasty and hits opposite field home runs like he's a lefty, which is ridiculous. And so I kept thinking, okay, I'm watching this. So I'm like, okay, this, the Cubs scouting report should have in bold letters right there, do not throw Mike Trout a curveball. Do not throw Mike Trout a curveball. Why? Because he's been working on the curveball machine every day this homestand. You know, it's just a little factoid. Well, someone tried to get cute and throw him a curveball. And the ball ended up in right center field seats. So that's Mike Trout in a nutshell. Awesome. Now, yeah, I've hit off the curveball machine myself. Doesn't mean I'd hit it out. So I'd probably throw myself a curveball, even if I was hitting off the curveball machine. But that's besides the point. Mike Trout is a different level. And that's what we got. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, think about this trip. And John Shambi, my partner. I call him John. People call him Boog, whatever. I call him John. John Shambi, great, one of the vo- great voices in this game. He goes out there and he's calling a game. For those of you who have never been to Anaheim, the booth, if you call straight back behind home plate, is really low, really low. And the ball can go over the net pretty easily. So we're kind of in some some very uncharted territory of danger right here. So I was like, I should have brought a glove. I forgot it. Now here, let me just give you a little bit of insight in major league, retired major league baseball players. Here's one thing we know. Do not catch a baseball with your bare hand. Okay, I'm just I'm just going to keep it simple. Do not catch a baseball with your bare hand at least 80 miles an hour and up. Bad idea. I don't care if you are a gold glover. It's called a gold glover. It's not a gold hander. It's a gold glover. You don't bare hand for a reason. So do not get on me when I dive out of the way and the instant replay away from the ball and someone gets hit. I'm sorry, but it's not my job unless I have a glove. Then it's my job. So John Shambi was sitting next to me and I was on to the right. He was to the left. He was kind of wedged into the corner and I don't know who hit it, but some angel hitter hit a foul ball straight back and most of it had missed us. But this day I was like, uh Oh, this is kind of going for right at John and I'm five feet away. So I couldn't even really reach over successfully. And even if I did, I was afraid I might screen the man and then, then he can't see and then he gets hit in the face. So I let it go. Probably looked bad on television. Didn't look like a loyal friend, but it was the right thing to do. And so it spins. It kind of hits him in the hand, chest area. I get the ball. I celebrate on camera. He has a jam thumb. He thinks he broke it. He ices it. And he says today he's fine. But he does go on the IL for about 48 hours. So moral of the story, do not mess with foul balls, at a, especially 100 miles an hour. You, you, you're out of your mind. So I worked with Dave O'Brien yesterday, Yankees, Red Sox. He said, I've seen a lot of Major League Baseball players try to catch foul balls and end up with broken fingers. So there you have it. All right, so just so for the record, get out of the way. Get out of the way. So John Chambi, I hope you're doing well right now. I'm sending you my love and respect and an ice pack if you still need it. By the way, factoid, Jason Stark would be appreciative of this. The Chicago Cubs lead all of Major League Baseball in foul balls. So maybe they're fan-friendly. I can't explain why. I'm just going to say they're fan-friendly. And that is part of all because you get a lifelong souvenir and you will never forget it. 
baseball does that to you better than any sport. That's that's my take. So let me just fast forward the three games in Anaheim. We drive, I drive back to the airport, I go home, then I go to Boston Yankees. And you know, come on, this rivalry is still electric. I don't care what anybody says. 46,000 deep in there. Now, one thing that's awesome about my life and history of baseball is I have a teammate who was a retired Teaneck police officer from my hometown. 40 years ago was my teammate. And every year he comes out to two or three games to meet me in New York or Boston. So this is one of the things that are really cool about keeping the family of baseball. He didn't make it this time. I saw him earlier in the year. I will see him in Boston for Father's Day. But a, a real cool journey to see an old friend. And baseball is awesome like that. It ties it all together, keeps your relationships fresh and shiny. But I want to bring it home to this. The Philadelphia Phillies were my team growing up. And I love these players. My very first autograph was when I wrote a note to a bunch of Phillies players, handwritten, mailed it, and I waited for something to come back. I didn't even know what was coming back. On one day, I get an envelope, I open it, and it's Bob Boone's autograph photo card in black and white. Bob Boone. This man, because he was the first above Mike Schmidt, I pinned him to my bulletin board over my bed, and it was up there for the next 10 years until it fell on me during an earthquake in New Jersey. So that's a sidebar. But I was fine. But Bob Boone was my first photograph card. So I tell I tell Aaron Boone this every chance I get. So we're doing the Yankee game. And I said, you know what? Let me ask you this. You've seen a lot. You've been in, around Major League Clubhouses your whole life. What still puts you in awe? What shocks you? What is your favorite piece of memorabilia? He's like, well, you know, Judge gave me an autograph bat, 62. That was cool. But he said it was when his mom took him to a Reds game. And George Foster was his favorite player. 52 home runs, by the way. And he thinks he was like five or six. It was even, it was probably, I think he had 52. I'll look it up. But 52 and either 75 or 77, I'm not sure. But the point being, George Foster signed that ball for him. He doesn't know where the ball is, but he remembers the feeling. He still remembers the feeling. He talked about it like his eyes lit up. He was excited. So now my mission, Aaron Boone, is to find you a George Foster autographed baseball if I have to get George myself. So you think about these things and it's part of the magic. So I think what I want to do is change it up here a little bit on Starkville because I can and Jason can't stop me. And as you know, my dad, who passed away over 20 years ago, he passed away on the last game of the season in 2002. He passed away at 7.15 p.m., roughly, which happened to be the time that the game ended between the Philadelphia Phillies and then the Florida Marlins. On that day, I came into the game with 998 hits, and I walked out with 1,001, and I got my 1,000th hit to the voice of Harry Callis on the day my father passed away. And so that is something that baseball has brought together and brought home to me about what is awe, what, what is magic, what is sometimes what we think of as divine in this sport. And, um, and I keep getting reinforcement, not just because of my personal story, because every game I do, I am reminded about how awesome this game is, how every single day there's something that I've never seen before that just makes me pause, that makes me want to say and, and jump out of the booth, and uh, every single game. I mean, that is just a gift that keeps on giving. So I understand all you out there, we love baseball, and that's one of the things that ties us together. 
So in my tribute to all these stories from this week, and that was just one week, and I can I have twenty other things I can mention. Uh, I want I want to at least recognize this one awesome moment before I go into this, and that is Florida Orozco. Florida Orozco is living with ALS seven years in. We do the Angel Games, John Chambi, Doug Glanville, and I park on the other side of the planet. So we're walking. We meet 10 different people. We stop. We finally get to the car. Right next to us is Florida Orozco and her husband, Emmanuel. Seven years ALS. Brought to tears by just seeing John Chambi because of what he's done with Project Main Street and all the work he's done with ALS and for ALS. We speak, we're in the parking lot for 20 minutes, the stories of how Project Main Street helped her family, helped her, helped her husband, was absolutely jaw-dropping. And when John Shambi and I got in that car before taking off and driving off to the next, back to the hotel, he, had, he couldn't speak. There was nothing to say. We just sat there in awe. Uh, so in honor of what baseball does and brings us together, allow me and indulge me for what I what I claim to be a amateur poet, but I'm going to do my best and capture awe. I am not Amanda Gorman. I'm no Amanda Gorman. However, I'm going to read it off the paper. So that's, that's all I can promise you. One day I'll memorize this. So it's my ode to awe. And I titled it very creatively, Awe. There are words that require no definition. One's that are captured only in pure emotion or simply in the look in someone's eyes. It drops jaws, it brings tears, but maybe most importantly, it locates childhood, found in the rope of time that binds us to memory and moments on one baseline. Awe is in the blood of baseball, DNA that brings us back on loop, not just to the ballpark, but to a nine-year-old version of ourselves with hat on sideways, covering our eyes, feeling our heart race when we met our favorite player. Time and time again, awe is challenged, sometimes disrespected, through our human attempts to manufacture it without authenticity nor sincerity. We cut corners, and on appeal, we lose in clear and convincing fashion, for true awe cannot be stolen, juiced, or weaponized to diminish others for not fitting in a batter's box. It transcends identity and language. It cuts through noise and materialism. It endures after time has elapsed by taking us where we needed to go, earthly or not. You cannot GPS inspiration or scroll down to recall why we are here, not without something that is everywhere at once, that also insists on humility as a prerequisite to absorbing its full effect. All always wins when we are honest, when we can be present and open to the impossible. Time then becomes magic in all of its clarity. Only then do we discover that we have the power to not only be an admirer of its effect, but to be a creator. That is my tribute to all. So that will do it for our Starkville episode. I wanted to end in poetic fashion. And I want to thank you for your loyal listening for all these years with Jason and I trying to pilot what is a game we all love out there. So I just want to let you know that I'm thankful I get to do this every week to talk about things that are magic about the game. And it might be minutia, but we can still be inspired by the smallest things. 
And that's why we care about this. And that's why we love it. And, and we can laugh about it. And uh, I think it all comes back to the fact that we share that space. And, uh, and there's nothing more special about how baseball celebrates that space as well as anything. So in closing, I want to thank you for your time and enjoy your, hopefully you're in your car ride. So then you can see me read my paper. <laughs> but other than that, uh, I look forward to catching up to you next week. Uh, but just a reminder about this uh, great deal we have with The Athletic. You can join The Athletic for $1.99 per month. That's right, per month. I don't know what that is per day, but it's it's pennies, basically. And you can do this by going to theathletic.com slash baseball show. That's athletic.com slash baseball show. And Jason and I, together, will be back next week. Uh, that will be Father's Day. So I guess happy Father's Day, since it will air after that point. And uh, look forward to catching up to you next week on Starkville.